Hello, and welcome to Learning for Life at Gustavus, the podcast about people teaching and learning at Gustavus Adolphus College and the myriad ways that Gustavus liberal arts education provides a lasting foundation for lives of fulfillment and purpose. I'm your host, Greg Castor, faculty member in the Department of History. Quote, Judaism is often called a world religion, but of that group, which can include traditions as diverse as Christianity, Islam, Confucianism, Hinduism, and Buddhism, it has the fewest adherents, approximately 15 million, and only a single country where it comprises a majority of the population, Israel. Jews are about 2% of the total population of the United States. Why then is Judaism so commonly discussed? Why are its texts so widely known? Why have its people so often been targeted for both plaudit and discrimination? End quote. So writes my guest today, Dr. Samuel Kessler, in the syllabus of his Introduction to Judaism course at Gustavus. Professor Kessler is a member of the Department of Religion at Gustavus, where he holds the Oki and Christina Bonier Chair in Jewish Studies. He earned his BA in History at New York University and MA and PhD in Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Prior to joining the Gustavus faculty in 2018, he was a postdoctoral fellow in Judaic Studies at Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University. In addition to Intro to Judaism, he has taught courses on world religions, mystics of the West, perspectives on evil, sin, and suffering, Abraham, science and religion, and the Holocaust then and now. An accomplished scholar, his works include a long list of scholarly articles and conference papers and two books in process, a co-edited volume with the working title, A Science of Jewish Theology, Sources from the 19th and 20th Centuries, and his own monograph titled City and Sanctuary, Adolf Yelnik and the Origins of the Modern Rabbi. His scholarship has been supported by numerous grants and fellowships, including from his doctoral institution, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, and the American Academy for Jewish Research. He's also active in community engagement as a speaker and organizer host of various events on and off campus related to the history and culture of Judaism. Having had the pleasure of visiting one of his courses and learning a bit from him about the fascinating subject of his monograph, and as someone who married into cultural Judaism and has often been taken to be Jewish, I'm delighted he could join me for this podcast conversation. So, Professor Kessler, Sam, welcome to Learning for Life. Great. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming. So you're in St. Peter right now. I'm in yeah. Minneapolis. You're in your office. Um, you are, by the way, I'm so excited that you were a history major as an undergraduate. <laughs> I was, just, I let's, was. Yeah, let's just yep. stipulate that right now. It's <laughs> awesome. We can, um, so what, what's it been like for you teaching in COVID? The one, the class I visited, if I remember correctly, it was on, at least I was zooming in. I guess it was in person, maybe it was hybrid, but what we've been doing a mix of hybrid. What, what's it been like for you? Yeah, well, so, you know, I, I think, the experience that all of us have had was, you know, our that first semester, we battened down the hatches, we got into it in yeah. spring 2020. And then, you know, we sort of learned to cope in fall 2020. And then we were hoping that things would change in 2021. And, and 2020, <laughs> I would say, was probably the hardest, you know, the, the, those two semesters, just in a sense of things looked like they were going up and then they looked like they were going down. Um, and so I, I would say that really it's been, it's been really, it, mostly for me, it's been trying to make sure that the students feel like, you know, I, like we're all engaged in this together. Like this is a, right. this is a project that we're, that we're all have to get through this, you know, yeah. and to make sure it didn't feel like I was more distant 
um, or that the class was yes. somehow less rigorous or that they were going to learn less. Um, so, you know, it's been, I, I can't say that uh, there is any wisdom, unfortunately, <laughs> that I have gained. <laughs> the wisdom I've gained is that in-person teaching um, at a liberal arts college is, you know, that's the value. That's that's the value we provide is the sitting around the room. I mean, I my my absolutely my best class I've ever taught was in spring 2021. We had just been allowed back in, um, you know, it was a 10 person seminar on um, mystics of the West, you know, and the students were just so grateful. You know, we had the windows open, we had the doors open, we sat really far apart, you know, but it was just this, at least we're here and we see that there's another body in the room. Right. Um, I, yeah. I think that's the class I, I, I think that's the class you visited, yes. Yeah, which was great. The energy. I mean, I could sense it. I could sense all of that just even though I was uh, online from Minneapolis. Yeah. All, all, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I, did you ever taught online? I'd never taught online before. I had, you know, in, in one of the things that Chapel Hill um, would do for graduate students was they would provide uh, like an online summer class uh, to help us. to help us, uh, where we were the where we were the, the the instructor, so that we could make a little money, so we could do some of our research during the summer. So I had some, okay. but those were never there was never a Zoom component, um, a video component. Those were completely the standard pre-COVID online classes where everything is done in writing. I wrote the lectures, you know, and then they wrote responses they on wrote, yeah. on a Blackboard style site, on a Moodle style site. Um, so I'd never done anything where like. I had video, like we had video conversations that was entirely right. new to me. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. Same here. I'm glad, uh, what is it called? These words, asynchronous. I, I, I yeah. did, um, I did synchro. I did synchronous uh-huh. from the start. I thought I have yeah. to do it. And you said something a minute ago, actually it's really important, which I, I want to underscore, which is that, you know, to get, help the students understand we're all in this together. We'll get through it. And then that this is a, this is still a real course. I mean, that's my sense, what the mm-hmm. students wanted. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of talk about how upset and yeah, that's all true. The students have been upset and nation, but the, my sense in teaching on the students really wanted, they craved a you know discussion of the material. Right. They, right. for the most part did, did the work. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, I was, I, I was pleased. I found, you know, one of the things you, one of the things, um, you know, the reason online I think is more difficult is because that if you, if you are struggling, it's harder for the professor to, to catch you struggling, you know, but right. for those who are going to do well, for those who, those who, even those who are moderately interested, they all do the work, you know, it, it's, yes. it's, the worry is actually more that it's just harder to catch the people who need come to my office and meet with me, stay after right. class, just a, a few seconds. And it's harder to catch those people and help them through. Yeah. But you know, yeah. the, the vast majority are going to, are going to be able to do it just fine. Exactly. They rose to the occasion. Yeah. Um, yeah. They always do. Yeah. I, I, I actually enjoyed, I mean, I missed being in person, but still all things considered, it wasn't the horrendous experience I was expecting. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, coming back, I've said this before in the podcast, coming back in person, which, which felt great for me, this was, that was this past fall. The one thing uh, that was, I mean, I was grateful that it was a mask mandate, but you know, that really did make a difference, at least mm-hmm. online. I saw mm-hmm. their, saw their faces yeah. Um, yeah. And, and could, you know, could kind of read their faces, even though it was, uh, there was a screen between us anyway. So you're, you're back in person, it sounds yes, like, or, or are you doing that? Yeah. Yep. Good. Yeah. What are you teaching this semester? Um, this semester I have a world, a world religions class, um, which is sort of the standard, um, rel 115 that the department offers. We 
try and cover the whole globe in 14 weeks. Uh, it's a um, it's a roller coaster of a ride. I, I do want to pause and just um, it's world religions, especially in religion departments across the country is is a I would say it's a topic of, of some debate and question. Is this useful? Is this um, is it even a legitimate way to talk? about mm. you know the like just incredible diversity of humanity right. and i really want to sort of step up for it i think it's um you know for almost all of our students it is the only time that they will ever be introduced um or have even to spend a couple of days with religions that are outside of you know what they're familiar with in in the united states or in right. major cities or what they grew up with i mean for us to just spend a couple of days watching videos of, of Hindu rituals or learning about, you know, the history of Confucianism or going into a, a Japanese, right. you know, temple, um, you know, through videos. Like, uh, I think there's uh, I do a lot with YouTube and, you know, following yeah. following people who are actively doing religion. And I just, you know, I think it's really it's it's the only time in, and, and my scholarship is not about world religions. So it's also for me. It's the only time during the year I really get to to sort of stop and like really like acknowledge and admire and just be really interested in all the other things humans are doing that are outside of my yeah. little scope. And so, right. so I love I love that class for that reason. It's you know, it's like taking a driving trip across the United States. It's like, yeah, it's better mm -hmm. if you lived in each of those states <laughs> for a year and you met all the people. That's true. <laughs> But nobody would tell you that you shouldn't drive across the United States and see how right. beautiful it is. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so I think it's a little bit, a little bit like that, you know. Um, is, and then there, I, is there a discussion? Go ahead. No, and then the Go other, the, I can. The other class is um, is a new class called Legends of the Jews, um, oh. where uh, where we're looking at at um, folklore and midrash and um, you know folk tales and fairy tales that are all <clears throat> we start start in the Hebrew Bible, um, but then move pretty quickly into the middle ages and, and the modern period. So I'm really excited about that course, uh, but it's new. That sounds great. <clears throat> yeah. That sounds exciting. Is that a, is that a, is that course a level two course? Yeah. Or level, yeah. 200, 200 level. Course. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. The, um, is, is your back to the stuff about world religions is, so is, is your department considering tinkering with the course or, or, or not? You know, we had a, we had a professor here who's now, um, <clears throat> who's now at St. Thomas, um, and he had gotten a grant to sort of look at um, to look at how we teach world religions and to try and think about it. And unfortunately, with his um, with his move to greener pastures uh, in St. Paul, <laughs> he uh, um, he uh, I think the motive like sort of the motivation behind that sort of dissipated. You know, people get sure. get busy. Um, yeah. I'm sure that we'll we'll come around in the next few years to to think about it again. Especially, you know, COVID put a lot of the curricular developments on in strange places. Um, right. But, but, I, but I'll, I'll say again, you know, no matter how much you, you tinker with it, and, and certainly I do each time, um, there's just an incredible value of, of the overview. Um, you know, I, 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 agree. I, I, re, I, I wouldn't mind if we forced the, the overview that I do for, <laughs> to high school students so that then I could teach, you know, an, a more yes. advanced class. But if this right. is the first time they get it, then, you know, who am I to judge whether you got it at 16 or you got it at age 21? You know, at least you got you, it. So, right. At yeah. least you got it. And you're right. What you said, it's probably the only, it's the only time for almost all of them probably yeah. that they'll be exposed. Yeah. And you, by the way, you did, I did like when I visited the, um, 
the the mystics class the way you used videos in that class too mm -hmm. where you even though even though you were in person you had the students looking at videos remember there was something about the torah and making maybe making the torah uh, sure the torah. sure yeah, yeah. no i, I um you know youtube is this incredible resource um yeah you know it just it, it's it's also it can be both very formal you know national geographic and pbs put things on but it can be just incredibly intimate you know people with their handheld cameras following you know their child's wedding and like that is that's what it looks like to be in lived religion is just to be there on the handheld camera of a wedding in a, a different state, a different country, a different continent. Um, and so it's just this incredibly useful, really vibrant place. And, and I will say COVID has made it more so, you know, so much so many videos of so many people doing so many interesting things have have shown up um on the internet right. so yeah yeah i um i'm a youtube i you know this started some years ago no longer she went on to it's just greener pastures if, if being an administrator <laughs> if being an administrator at another institution uh but she in english she um did a lot with youtube and that hooked me as i started to you know find clips related to what i was talking about in the yeah. past i mean it's awesome i agree with you the other thing you know you just used a phrase which i which I like uh, my my um, my mentor at Boston University was David Hall, who's an expert on Puritanism and mm -hmm. now now emeritus at Harvard Divinity. Anyway, but this this could you just say a little bit about what you mean by lived religion? What, what does <laughs> sure, that mean? sure. That is uh, the insider lingo of my graduate school, right? So this um, so one of the ways I think we had we had historically taught religions was as um, as texts. Right. Here are the things right. that religions write. Here are the theologies. Here are the lists of rules. Um, and then as historical events, here is what happened to this group. Here is, you know, the new leader of this group. And, you know, because learning from different disciplines, because of anthropology and ethnography and and trying to think that actually a lot of what happens in religion is related to those texts and to those leaders, but it actually is really about personal lives and individual choices um, yes. and community ac activities as they, you know, as they evolve together. And so really trying to show like, we actually do very little, I would say in my class comparatively uh, to how it would have been historically taught with standard texts of religions um, and much more with what is what does a church service in West Virginia look like? What does yeah. an Episcopal service in right an English ta country town look like? What does it look like to be to pray in a mosque in Mali or in or in Saudi or in Turkey? And to go into those places where you get a, just a sense of of what is the physical activities people are doing? How are they chatting with each other? What are they dressed like? Right. What is the right. physical, what are the physical people look like? Right. How are the music and sounds different and how are they similar? Um, rather than just saying like, here's what Christianity believes. Here's what Islam believes. Um, <laughs> you know, which is, which is very important because those are ultimately, you know, that that's ultimately the external framing for all of these. I mean, someone is, yes. it's obvious why someone is Muslim versus someone is Catholic, right? That is because of an external framework of laws and regulations and history. But the way in which one actually lives an Islamic life versus a Catholic life, you know, it actually, uh, you know, 
on an on an I guess I would say on a, on an hour to hour basis doesn't really run up against those those outer walls because you're living inside of a community. So it's trying to that's show exactly right. trying to show what it looks like to live inside of that inside of that community. Yeah, and that's where your history major comes into play too, because you're doing. <laughs> I mean, that's social history in a way, and cultural right. history. Yes, yeah, yeah that's. Yes. I, I love that phrase, and yeah, I guess it is an insider phrase, but um, I lived religion as opposed to. Well, that's. I took a I took a Bible course as an undergraduate mm -hmm. in Northern, mm -hmm. which I loved. It was fantastic, Mr. Orville Baker, Professor Baker, mm -hmm. um, and actually has been very useful in some of my own work. But, but that you know, we, it was just focused on that text not yeah. at all on yeah. what you know, what did people what did people actually do with the bible right right <laughs> anyway, no and not. that's and that's wonderful i mean like that's i mean it's the again the joy of of intellectual life is that all of it's important i mean the actual right. word by word the text what does it mean what are the theological implications you know but it, but and for me that's that's like that is a really fun part of part of life but uh, for students where I get, you know, I just get a couple of hours with them at a moment, I, I want at some level, what I want is for them to, I, God willing, they should all be wealthy enough to be able to travel as <laughs> tourists around the world. And I want it to be like, they can, they can get off the plane anywhere and they'll start to pick up on what people are doing and how they're living and you know, why these, why the buildings look different, why the colors are different, why the smells yes. are different and just studying the sort of core historic sacred texts. I actually don't think we'll sort of prepare them to no. be, to enjoy the world as much. You know, you can always go back to those, I think. Um, right. Which is again, you can very read strange. them on the plane. <laughs> you can read them on the plane. And, and it's actually such a strange thing for, I would think actually for like a scholar like me to say, cause like so much of my life is actually in, in texts. It's um, in the text. Yeah. It's in the text. But like as a teacher, I think what I, what I want them to hear, what I want them to see and to feel and, uh, uh, and to want to want to experience in real life versus on a screen is just, the the joy of like human life humans are so cool um we're also very evil like we're also yeah, very, both we're things also are very true. evil you know but yeah, we're both things are true. but we're but we're amazing um and and we're so much humans are so much more um impressive as a group you know any given individual is fine but when you go out <laughs> and you see all the things that we've done and all the creativity and all the stuff we've built and all the ideas we've had we're extraordinary. So yeah, this is that's what that's what always gives me hope for yeah. for what even even in a time like this. Yeah, that incre oh, incredible. Absolutely. I, I say we're on the same page here. I say this all the time about create. One of my little mini rants, I guess, about <laughs> creativity. You know, and the evil, but the creativity going together simultaneously. The other yeah. thing I love about you and your teaching, and it came through in the definitely in the in the in the class I visited, is your own sense of joy and that emphasis on enjoyment, which I which I couldn't agree more with. And yeah, what is the the point of learning or learning how to learn if not to as one person once said she was a former college president or university president make the inside of your head an interesting place to live the rest mm -hmm. of your life yeah and enjoy life yeah you know? yeah uh, yeah so i'm i'm with you there 
Let's talk about your own lived experience. Uh, go back in time <laughs> sure. here. Um, where, tell us a little bit about your ba- your background, where you grew up, and that sort of thing. Um, well, so my father was a college professor. I uh, still is. Oh. Um, where and, at? Uh, where, what does he teach? Uh, so while I was grow, I was growing up uh, when I was in elementary school. He um, taught at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. Actually, oh sure, um, oh, yeah. And uh, he's in the he was in the school of education. He's, uh, my parents are trained as um, psychologists, psychotherapists. Um, okay. And, uh, and then he got a job at Syracuse University. So we moved to Syracuse. Um, and that's where I went uh, to middle school and high school. Um, but so I felt, you know, growing up, I was always around colleges and universities. I, the, the normal thing in my family was when you go to a new, a new city or a new town, you go and you visit the college just to see it. <laughs> and like, to me, that was, there's a, there's a wonderful story um, about one of Darwin's um, daughters um, that, uh, you know, she was young, maybe six or seven, and they went to visit another, uh, one of the, you know, the wealthy families in the, in the district and they won't go to dinner. And she goes up to the, the master of the house and she says, can you show me your beetle collection? Right. Because like, she thought it was normal that fathers have collected beetle <laughs> collections. Um, and so I would say that for me growing up, um, you know, I just, it was normal, like colleges and universities were like, of course, that's what you, that's the cool thing sure. to see in a new city, right? You go to the art yeah. museum and you go to the college, um, not <laughs> knowing that that was a deeply peculiar um, <laughs> way, way of being a tourist in a new town. Um, you know, so that's I- That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Did they, were your parents practicing psychologists too um, at the same time? No. So I- if I, I would say if they had been, we would have stayed. They, they were um, from California. Um, I would say we probably would have stayed in California. But my father wanted to be a professor. Okay. Um, yeah. He loved teaching. Um, he's a gifted teacher. Um, uh, uh, I can only I can only be a pale a, a, be a pale uh, resemblance to what the to the true uh, to the truly gifted teacher <laughs> that my father is. Um, uh, you know that that kind of inspiring of real loyalty. Um, he teaches graduate I, school. I, 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 um, I think you're doing okay, Sam. <laughs> well, really we'll, well, we'll see. But you know, um, um, so uh, you know, so it was so I know it was really he wanted he wanted to be a teacher, wanted to be a researcher. You know, he was a, he's a social scientist at heart. So yeah. much more in the um, collection of data. Uh, stuff okay. that I stayed far away from, I would say. Um, I don't have a social you, scientist did, bone in my body. Um, but <laughs> yes, and history's history's not a we, we, uh, history's a humanities <laughs> discipline. Yeah, the, I, um, I, I, right. I just <laughs> anyone who says history is a social science, I think is. Yeah. Uh, but you know, yeah. yeah same here. When we, when we, Kate and I came to Gustavus, it was in the social science division. Then it was mm-hmm. in the humanities division, but in the social science building, which was uh-huh. Anderson. Now the where education is. You know, what about your mom? Was she teaching also? I missed. So, it. so my, so my mother. They both went to graduate school um, okay. um, together. But then my mother um, decided to sort of go more the practical route. So she, she. Um, uh, was a social, she started as a social worker. She was actually, um, a, an academic advisor when they lived in Southern California. And then she became a social worker, um, in Iowa. She worked for Lutheran social service, um, in oh, Des Moines. Really? Oh. Um, and then, uh, she worked at the Jewish, um, the Jewish, the Jewish home for the age, uh, the elderly, uh, in Des Moines. Okay. Uh, and then she worked again as an academic advisor at Syracuse. Um, and so she was, I think much more of the practical side, the, the really being with with people in um, at times of need or helping with the community and figuring out things like Meals on Wheels and working with families in the in the home. Um, that was really, you know, she's she has this she was she's one of those people who 
you stand in line next to her at the grocery store and then by the time you've checked out she knows everything about you she knows she knows that your brother is sick she knows that your parents are on a trip she knows that you know what grades your kids got in school you know just one of these uh, so i think together my parents like if you combine them into a single person they'd be like a great politician right and then separately they're like you know great in their own fields so yeah. i can relate to your mom i'm that way i get that from my greek american dad um, <laughs> sure sometimes sure. sometimes my wife kate will come home from and i'll say well you know what about did you find out and you're like, no why did you ask are you kidding me how did you not know <laughs> yeah um, yeah i love that well what my, about, my mother's, um, my mother's for, i would say my mother's favorite movie for a decade was my big fat greek wedding because it, it reminded <laughs> it reminded her of her jew of her jewish of all of her big enormous jewish family but also just like the gregariousness <laughs> the love of life yeah. the like yeah exactly the, like, delightful squabbles <laughs> and things and the peculiarities so it, it felt she felt very she felt like these are my people even though you know technically not yeah, Greek, um, greeks jews my father and his brothers passed god all the time i mean um so funny and i've been passing as jewish i mean literally people <laughs> even in minneapolis once on nicolette mall here in downtown minneapolis someone came up to me and started speaking I guess it was Hebrew. I, I said, I'm <laughs> sure. sorry. I don't know. Right. You know, I, I don't know what you're saying. Another guy I met here in the, where we live in this building near the elevator started speaking, you know, Hebrew on <laughs> Sabbath. I said, I'm mm -hmm. sorry. I don't know what the hell you're, what the hell you're saying. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm right. flattered. You know, anyway. Um, do you, so what about brothers and sisters? Do you have brothers nope, and just, sisters? Just me. Just, just me. Just you. Okay. Yep. So was, how, how, how big a part was Judaism in, in your family growing up? Yeah, I mean, so my, I would say, so my, my, my parents, I would say, became more religious over the course or more, um, maybe religious is the wrong word, actually more observant, I think would be the correct term um, over mm -hmm. the course of my, in el being in elementary school. So moving from not keeping kosher to keeping kosher, moving from not keeping okay. the Sabbath to keeping the Sabbath, uh, moving from not being a part of a community. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do with, with when I was born, you know, I think people, People really do change. I have a toddler myself, um, you know, and I, there is a real sense of like, I kind of want to, I want to give this new person something a little different maybe than I had been doing when I was just single or, you know, in a couple. And so yes. I think that that was a motivation for them um, to become, especially when my father got the job in Des Moines to, to join a community um, and, uh, and to yeah. be involved. And then what they found was that, I I would say that, you know, in any way, when one rewrites the past, you could say it was always there, right? I mean, my, sure. my father had read lots of Jewish novelists before and my, you know, my mother had never thought of herself as not being a part of, of the people, but they just hadn't like really gone into, uh, really just been a, been a part of a, of, of a practicing lived community in, in that way that we yeah. talk about lived religion, they'd been right. lived Americans, um, yeah. and just kind of doing their thing and making their careers. And, um, you know, all, you know, this is Southern California in the eighties. So, so many of their teachers and professors are, are these old, you know, old German European Jewish psychologists and, you know, right. the, the life of like, cultural Judaism in Southern California, you know, yeah. for its entire, for, you know, since the early 20th century has just been, you know, so they were always surrounded by that. But then I really think it was, I mean, I haven't, I guess, asked them, but like the dates line up that, you know, when I, yeah. you know, I got to be one or two and they're like, I, we think we really, 
we want him to be a part of some sort of actual community structure. Um, right. And so then they fell into that. And, and I found that like, that was, that was really the life that they, that they, I guess think developed into, I don't think they would, they, they would never say that their time, their time is, you know, single people in Southern California was anything but wonderful. Um, <laughs> which is what I would say to all our, my students, you know, in like, life, you know, life will take you in a whole series of developmental moments. Um, That's right. so, uh, so they found that and then we just became really, you know, my father started to go going to, um, services every morning, which is a traditional Jewish practice. Um, you know, we became very good friends with uh, a number of the rabbis who in town, um, who had children about my age and, you know, and then just, and hosting, you know, um, meals for the various holidays. And so I, I, I would say that by the time, you know, I came into consciousness, we, I lived in a, in a very, in a very community centered traditional household, um, which, which I think for my parents would have been like, that was exactly what they wanted, but, but that was not like, it felt new to them. And to me, it felt right. formative. So, it felt you, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is it, so, I mean, this gets us into the different Varieties <laughs> sure, of Judaism, sure. but are, were they so were your were your parents orthodox? No, or so my, my parents or? were were my parents were on the tra the traditional side of conservative. Um, okay. What I guess historically one would consider like like classic conservative from the middle of the twentieth century, um, where they were they were serious about all of the holidays and serious about um, serious about the law, um, traditional Jewish law. Um, and tra and very serious about the Sabbath. You know, we didn't watch TV. We didn't go out to eat. You know, we went to services, sure. um, yeah. you know, for the whole 24, 25 hours of, of Shabbat, uh, Friday night to Saturday to Saturday evening. Um, you know, versus, you know, many, there are many ways to be conservative. Um, and this is getting into a lingo. Conservative in Judaism means moderate <laughs> uh, um, versus like in American politics, we're conservative. Right, to the right. Um, yeah. So, uh, so, you know, they were certainly on the on the further traditional right hand side of, of conservative, of but still yeah. um, but still deeply um, um, um I would say modern in the sense there was never a question we would go to, we wouldn't go to the movie you know there's never a question about going to the movies they were very egalitarian right. um, never a question of like going to going to not going to college you know not nothing that was that was further right. to the right um, but they were good friends with the then um, Orthodox rabbi and and Rebitzin, his wife uh, in Des Moines um, uh, may they rest in peace uh, the Bergs who were a wonderful and lovely family and so we spent a lot of the holidays with the Orthodox rabbi, um, even huh. though my parents themselves weren't, which, which is, I think how sort of I gravitated then growing up, um, sort of more, more to the, to the Orthodox side than the conservative side. Um, and then married a woman from the, from an, from the Orthodox world in Brooklyn. Um, oh, where really? was, where what was, part of Brooklyn? Uh, from Flatbush. Um, oh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Flatbush, uh, oh, Midwood, uh, Avenue yeah. Yeah. My wife yeah. Kate grew up mostly in Brooklyn Heights. So yeah. Our parents moved sure. there when it wasn't, you know, no one wanted to be there. But <laughs> of course. Yeah, that's, everyone love, moved love to Brooklyn, Brooklyn when nobody wanted to be there. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's um, neat. So, so, so you, I mean, you would, would you self, you self identify as Orthodox? Yeah. Or so then we, to, I would say, yeah. you know, from, from really from high school and then really from college on just found, and I think much of that would be what I would say is that 
is that in the middle of the 20th century, like I'm, I'm really very conservative, what, what the conservative movement stood for. Um, but in the way that all, all movements, all religions change and their peoples change that the, the sort of standing, what, what, what the conservative movement finds itself caring about these days are, I think I just, just a little bit less personally interesting to me. They're scholastically interesting to me, um, mm. but a little less sort of personally, livingly less interesting to me than okay. than um, than the Orthodox. Um, and then my wife is is Orthodox Orthodox. She just, you know, she would never identify herself in any other way. Um, yeah. So uh, you know, so we then live uh, uh, when we lived in in Minneapolis in the Orthodox community, and it felt really comfortable. Um, to us, I would say we're then well, we found ourselves on the on the liberal side of orthodox versus on the growing up on the right side of conservative. So there is a there is a meeting there in the in the yes. middle <laughs> somewhere. Right, and um, this is where the live part comes in. These things are not not you know fast right. hard categories. Absolutely I mean, not. Right Absolutely yeah. not. No, and and what's really interesting in <clears throat> in this part of Judaism uh, in this particular community, it's it's probably about. Five to ten percent of total sort of American Jew Jews find themselves sort of on the right hand side of conservative, on the left hand side of orthodox, and and one of the interesting things we've seen in this community since the early aughts has been um, trying to figure out: is there a name for this? Should we name ourselves? <laughs> Should we just be lived religions? Should we just be sort of individual communities that find their way? Should we have a larger umbrella organization? Um, you know, should we call it open orthodoxy? Should we call it uh, traditional? Should we call it, you know, we're not named, but we're like egalitarian, observe it. You know, so, you know, and, and there's an endless number of op-eds. Jews love writing op-ed articles about themselves. <laughs> um, and, you know, but it's just really, I think it's, um, you know, again, it's a, it's a relatively small community, but if you're in, if you're in it, it's sort of... Right. Um, it is going through. It's actually not an identity crisis. It's going through an identity formation. It's That's like, what it sounds there like. There are athlete. people who want a thing here, and we got to figure out how to like, yeah, talk about it with each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's all interesting. It's really interesting. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Religion is cool. I, my, um, <laughs> religion it is cool. cool. My, my, I grew up. Well, I was baptized in the Greek Orthodox Church. Uh, all I remember about the Greek or, uh, was. Uh, God, the great fresh bread at communion. I mean, I'll never sure. forget that. And then, but then grew up, mostly grew up Episcopal, kind of mm -hmm. in the, in the mm -hmm. suburbs of, of Chicago. Mm -hmm. But my wife, Kate, I guess, um, reformed Judaism, although mm -hmm. uh, her twin brother and his wife, I think they go to temple at least occasionally. Kate didn't really, mm -hmm. you know, she, oh no, she, she was too, too, she didn't have, she was born in 52, so she wouldn't have had a bat mitzvah. But Probably anyway, not, she went right. to Hebrew school, yeah. you know, but that, but when I met Kate and her parents, it was all, Cultural. I mean, they weren't right. going to temple right. or anything like right. that. Um, yeah. But you know, certainly that that cultural identity is is um, Jews. Yeah. So what what about history? I want to talk because you went to NYU and were a history major. That was a great <laughs> history department. Yes. Um, what, yes. What were you already interested in history in, in high school? I mean, what drew you to that major? Oh man. So so that that story in brief is that my my first love in life is natural history. Actually. Okay. Um, oh. So I in in. In a perfect world, I would be a 19th century natural historian at a museum, <laughs> you know, in, in well, You mentioned London. Darwin earlier. Correct. <laughs> you know, so I, in my office here, I have, you know, lots of pictures of naturalists. Um, so I would say, nat you know, the study of, of the world, of really just like of the natural world was, was my absolute first love. 
Um, and then what I found was I, I, I worked in high school in, in um, with a series of scientists at, at Syracuse University. Um, and my, my love of natural history, the kind of natural history that I love just isn't done anymore. Um, I don't want to sit in a lab. I didn't want to sit in a lab all day. I wanted to sit around specimens. I didn't want to do genetics. I wanted to do systematics. And, you know, that I was just too old fashioned. I'd missed my moment. Um, and so what I, what I thought when I went to college was, well, instead of being a naturalist, I would study naturalists. So, okay. um, so I went to the history program to do kind of history of science, the history oh, yeah. of, um, uh, and then what I would say, and here's my plug for, um, my plug for study abroad is that by a series of circumstances, I went abroad to Berlin, Germany, um, my junior year of, of college, um, and, and through this whole thing, I'd, you know, I'd been practicing, I'd been a practicing Jew very, you know, I would, I would have looked very religious to anyone as I would now, um, you know, but my, but my field of study was, was, um, was the history of science. Um, and then I went to Berlin, um, for my semester abroad again. And this is where I would say for, for the, for parents who are thinking about study abroad, but like, are not sure if there fits into their student schedule or students who go to study abroad, like it actually doesn't matter where you go. I had not planned to go to Berlin. I, agree. I couldn't um, agree more. Like Berlin was, I grew up in a family in which Germany was a persona, yeah. was a, was a persona non grata in the family exactly. um, for obvious reasons. Yeah, for obvious um, reasons, right. You know, we would never have yeah. owned a German yeah. car. We would never have gone there. And by a series of circumstances, I ended up in Berlin. Um, and I just, uh, I fell in love. I fell just, just like, like, like a, like a rom-com, you know, not, not in love in like, not in love, I, I would say, but like, with just like, I was just like overcome by like how different it was than the United States and by the people mm. and by the places and by the history. And it was, it was incredibly sad. Like it was, there was so much sadness in Berlin, but there's so much humanity there. And the Jewish community is extraordinary and the people and meeting Germans and meeting Jews and meeting Russians and meeting Israelis and meeting Poles and, uh, you know, and meeting Austrians and, and like meeting Hungarians. It was just like, this is an incredible, and so yeah. I was, I was like, I just, you know, I just like, I want to know more about this, about this people. And, and I fell in love with the German language. Um, I really, I really, I'd never studied German before going to Germany. And I just, I loved how it sounded. I love how it sounded when I spoke it. I, I like, I love, I just loved hearing it. And I know that's a crazy thing. You know, my, everyone in my family loves sending me memes about like how ugly, you know, how ugly German right. is, you know, the wonderful one where they go through all the butterfly papillon and then they're like, Schmetterling, yeah. Yeah. you know, and it's like, not everyone speaks like a Nazi in Germany, right? right. Like exactly. German is incredibly, it's an incredibly yeah. beautiful language. And the, and the youth of Germany are just like the student, the student life in Germany is, I mean, this is true across Europe it is really different than the United States. Yes, um, there's, yes. um, there's actually just a, like being a student in Europe is being free, right? It's like the, like you're just, you're there mostly funded by the government to think right. and read and drink and sit outside and like, yeah. and, tr and become a series of different people, try on ideas and be a Marxist and, uh, you know, and, and that's exactly be, right. Uh, be, be a libertarian and be a green yeah. party person and be a conservative and just yeah. to try like, and it was just to see this student culture was, was really lovely. So I just felt, I felt really hard for central Europe. 
Um, yeah. Uh, and then going to graduate school, I, I, I thought of, I really thought about going to graduate school for the history, for history of science. Um, and then I wanted to combine it with Judaism. So I was like, maybe, maybe Jews have said something about zoology, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, long story <laughs> short, Jews hadn't said very much that was interesting about zoology. Um, so I, I kind of just, my, I moved, I moved into following again, a series of happenstances. I ended up getting a fellowship in Leipzig. Um, in the former East Germany, uh, about an hour south of Berlin, um, oh, wow. and really just sort of was like, this community needs someone to write about them, and and sort of really, it was just a, a series of happenstances and personal meetings, and and kind of following passion in a way that I think is, when I think about it, is like um, like really privileged, right? I mean, like yeah, I, it's it's it's, it's ideal. <laughs> it's too. ideal, I mean, you know. I, it's I the ideal way. I didn't worry. I I never thought I would get a career in marketing or advertising or you know pre med or anything. Like I, right. you know, I, I got a I got a P. What is it a the L the whatever whatever the book is that you go to law school for? Um, oh, the LSAT. The LSAT. Yeah, LSAT. You know, I got an LSAT yeah. book. You yeah. know, and then I never opened it because I was like, it's just not. It's just not for me. Um, but I was uh, the same way. I mean, I, I when I think about, it, I mean, I, history was it for me from high school forward, um, with no thought of anything else. So my parents were supportive, even though my, yeah, my mother right. went to a two-year teacher college. My dad hadn't gone to college. Yeah, that's we're, we're privileged. And man, you're making me want to jump on. I've never been to Germany. I want to go, but um, uh, thinking about students, yeah, yeah, I want yeah. to go. So, but my wife's family's, uh, in fact, my brother-in-law was just visiting. Was just saying. Uh, how much he enjoyed Berlin, but how yeah. hard it was at first. So, you know, yeah. he never wanted to go to Germany. He yeah. fell in love with Berlin also. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, the student life, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, <laughs> it's just, to me, it's all of those things you said while, you know, while drinking good wine or beer yes. or coffee. Yes, right. you know, it's yeah. like, yeah, this cheap is what it means wine, to be an intellectual. It's yeah, amazing. Exa yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And as you said so well, trying on, you know, identities, ideas, um, that's really what it should be about. Yeah. Um, so, so when you so you wind up in religious studies at <laughs> yes. Chapel Hill yes. yeah and then um talk to us about I mean how do you get from there I know you had the fellowship at Virginia uh what's it called Virginia Polytech yeah. how do you how do you get to Gustavus what bring, I mean tell us a little bit about that <laughs> well you know because so, you know you're you're that you have this chair in Jewish studies at a Lutheran related right, uh, liberal right. arts college in the middle of Minnesota yeah well so what I would say is that I've you know I think because because I I I was raised not, you know, on the east, not on on the east coast, in the midst of, you know, a like real, a real sort of um, heart heart of American Jewish culture. Um, so I was always on the kind of on the fringe, and then I had these interests in history and natural history and Europe and Germany. Um, that I I went to a religious studies program and not a Jewish studies program um, because I I was actually interested in always kind of being around like other kinds of scholars who were doing things really differently than myself. There, there's an incredible um, joy in being in a Jewish studies program at a Jewish studies institution because, I mean, you're just, everyone around you is learning the same languages and, you know, has all the references that you need. But there's also something that I really enjoyed, which is like, I kind of want to, I want to go to next door and say like, are you, you must be working on something like radically different than me. Right. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, my, I think it comes back to my joy of the world religions class where it's well, just there's a certain exactly. samplingness where it's like it's just I mean, my colleagues here, you know, it's like from everything from Hebrew Bible to children and religion to American religious history, um, you know, to the to medieval Catholicism to 
uh, to Buddhism. I mean, it's just, I think, so what I, what I decided in graduate school, and this was, this was one of the, the most overt sort of decisions where the rest of life kind of took me by the river <laughs> of life. But this was a decision which was to go to a religious studies program and not a Jewish studies program. Um, and that's really why I ended up at Gustavus, um, because I, I, want, I, wanted, I wanted to be the only person. I, I was OK being the only person doing Jewish studies because I wanted to be around other people who weren't doing that, who were doing something else. Um, and so, you know, I, I pretty much only applied to jobs at liberal arts colleges um, or, or where I would be in departments that weren't Jewish studies. Um, and, and again, like I, I have nothing but respect. Like I love Jewish studies programs. I love going to going to conferences where at places where it's, you know, there are 10 people all doing Judaism. You know, NYU is, is an incredible Judaic studies program, right? The Hebrew Judaic Studies yeah. uh, Skirball Institute is just incredible. But I, I wanted to be, and it's why I was sort of a history major instead of a Jewish studies major at NYU also, because I wanted to be able to study history of science. I wanted to be able to take a class on Galileo. I wanted to be able to take a class on China, you know, as part of my major. I wanted to be able to take a class on, you know, great African, West African kingdoms, um, you know, where it's just sort of the humans are amazing. I, I think it just comes well, yeah, back you're, you're... to the, the I, like do I want to do one thing or do I want to sample? And I've decided that I, I want to spend a life kind of sampling, I think. Me too. And that's what I love about being, um, what I love about being at Gustavus. I didn't attend a liberal arts college, state, Mm -hmm. state university and Boston university. My wife, Kate went to Bard. So she has that experience. Yeah. I, and you, it comes through in your teaching and just hearing you talk now. I mean, your curiosity, your, um, you know, the omnivores dilemma about food, yeah, about intellectual yeah. <laughs> ideas and culture too. Yeah. I'm, I'm completely with you on that. Um, I'm grateful. I don't have to specialize as in my teaching. Or right. I could do right. a podcast. For example. One thing I love about yeah. the podcast is the variety of the stuff I learn. So tell us a little about this, the chair you hold, the Bonnier chair that I mentioned in the introduction. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I, I, mean, I was that. fortunate, you know, I, I'm the beneficiary of, of the, of the work and thought and money of so many people before me to, uh, you know, to ask uh, um, uh, the Bonnier family, uh, um, a Swedish Lutheran family um, with Jewish heritage, German Jewish heritage, um, who had been associated with the college, um, I think for a couple of decades, actually, before, uh, before they made this gift, and they approached them uh, maybe a few years before I, before I came here sometime in the early mid 2010s, and, um, and asked them to make, uh, uh, to make an inter an interreligious and multi faith space. So they built a multi faith center separate from the chapel um, on campus, and then also to endow a position. Um, he the uh, uh, really Oki uh, Bonnier. Um, he his family is a German Jewish family that, em- that emigrated to uh, to Sweden in the early twentieth uh, century, um, and uh, and he was interested in supporting a, a Jewish studies position. Um, the college had never had a permanent one. Before uh, it makes sense if you're uh, in a department. Uh, it's a logical. It's a logical addition uh, to a liberal arts yes. college. Um, I, I would say we uh, for anyone out there with a million dollars, we have another a couple of other logical <laughs> positions we would love to have as well. You know, but um, but thinking about building on a tradition where the the department had been a theology department, read a Christian theology department, branched out into being a religious studies department. Um, with biblical studies and then with uh, uh, a professor of Buddhism and then with a professor of 
um, Southern, uh, you know, uh, liberation theologies of the global South, and then with American history, like just a general sort of American religious historian. And so there right. was a natural, um, you know, and, th- and then before I, I before I came, they had hired an, an, an Islamic studies professor. So, you know, when this gift came through, I think it was a natural, a natural addition. Um, and then I was fortunate enough uh, um, to be uh, to be hired for the position. Um, and and I, I really, you know, I can't promote this department enough. It's not propaganda. It's not fluff. Um, no, it no, really, no. it really is, you know, a deeply scholarly um, yeah, department super, um, that cares tremendously about teaching and about, you know, the history of religion. And what I would say is it's a department that enjoys the diversity of religion. Uh, like that's, it's really one of the, and I think that's, I would say there's, there's something special about liberal arts colleges where you you can indulge in the in the joy of what we do in a way that big research institutions uh, i think are just much more siloed um you know that there, there's we can stand around and just be so happy that we get to do what we do yeah, um and I, I agree. teach what we teach um in a yes. way that that's different than if you know it's this is not a publish or perish department no. it's uh no, it's, it's a publish because you have really interesting things that you want to tell the world and it's a teach because it's really fun and it's a read and think and chat in the hallway because that's so much of what life's about um, exactly so. yeah no all that all that i, I again I, I agree with um it was you know, sort of what I had in my head is this ideal of being a professor at such uh-huh. a, such a place, and it's it's mostly true. I, I I forgot about you know, or I didn't forget. I didn't know about all the meetings and all that stuff, yeah, which can be kind yeah, of yeah. that that's at any institution. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and Bonnier, I mean, uh, okay, he's a he's a you may have said he's a Lutheran bishop, he's right? A Lutheran it's kind bishop. Of yes, yes, yeah. Yes, so yes. one of his one of his, one of his parents. I mean, did he grow up Jewish or what? No, do you know so what, his what? so his father was Jewish, uh, um, okay. and his. But his but married a, a non-Jewish uh, but a Swedish Lutheran and and he you know, was raised in the I think was raised in the church but maybe um, not super religious but found um, that that he really wanted a life in the church he's um, almost probably nobody who listens to this will get to meet him unfortunately just because he lives far away um, but um, he and his wife are they are exactly what you want to think. A, a bishop in the church would be right. Just this incredibly generous, inquisitive, thoughtful human person, right? Uh, the, a mensch in every way that that word <laughs> in that word <laughs> means, um, um, you know. And so, and just has this real devotion to interreligious dialogue. Um, and I mean, Europe is a different place than the United States, and Europe is still really riven by incredible factions. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, we see this playing out in the news, but but it doesn't even uh, – the American news doesn't even know how to talk about it, right? I mean, like, mm-hmm. to hear – a Latvian talk about a Russian to hear a, a, a Hungarian talk about a pole, you would just be like, you would be flabbergasted. You'd be like, America is an oasis of racial calm <laughs> next to some of the ways that <laughs> Europeans talk about each other. Um, you know, and, and so there's, I think that, you know, it comes out of a tradition in which like, it's just, 
this is it's a continent that's had a lot of struggle and and really seeing so much of what he his response his role in in the church is both as as a pastor to to people in the church but also as someone with a history in kind of two in two worlds you know in the world yes. of European Jewry and in the world of German acculturated but still um, but still as a different as a different people a German Jew is not a German. Um, and then someone right. in in the in in the world of the Swedish Lutheran Church. Um, so he, he he brought those together. He's he's wonderfully been able to bring those together in his contributions and and re, really generosity yeah, to. It's just Davis. great. I'm so. I, I'm going to try uh, maybe with your help and your colleague Marsha Bungie's help to see if he would podcast with I, me. I think that um, would be wonderful. Because be maybe wonderful. maybe Christine also. Yeah, because yeah, his story I just find so so interesting and just yeah. learn more about him from from you. A second ago, you mentioned how we're we're not your department, but really the, the college as a whole, not a publisher parish institution, which I also am grateful for. Um, and nonetheless, some, <laughs> sure. some of us, uh, I've not published books, but you you have the co-edited book. And then the book I'd like you to talk about is the one that, um, it sounds like it's off to the press now, the, the oh. book on the, the uh, uh, Adolf Yelnick, um, go ahead. Yelnick, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm hope, final revisions at the moment, and then hopefully okay. will be will appear next spring. That's the goal. That's great. Um, so, um, yeah. So talk, to him, talk to us a little bit about him. He's, and he's fascinating. What I what I learned about him during your uh, third year review. Go ahead. Yeah. So so uh, in the Judaism, the, the book is really about the the transformation of 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 urban Jewish culture in the middle of the 19th century. And I focus on a man named Adolf Jelinek, um, who was born uh, in what's now the southern part of the Czech Republic in in Moravia. Um, at the time, it was a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, and educated very traditionally in a very a very Jewish, a re, very religious, uh, as pretty much every Jew uh, in Europe was uh, in the early part of the 19th century, born in 1821, um, and uh, uh, educated very religiously, but then sent to Prague uh, in his teenage years uh, to school. Um, and then there's a at this moment in in the 1830s um, and eight, or in early 1840s, um, there's a a movement of traditionally educated Jews, uh, men, um, being going to attend European universities. Um, and so he takes the opportunity uh, to attend as an undergraduate um, the University of Leipzig, which at the time uh, was really one of the centers for um, uh, what we would now think of as like a, a Oriental scholarship, a Semitic scholarship, Oriental not in the negative way, but of the study of the ancient near the ancient and modern Near East. Um, okay, and and so he learns Arabic, he learns Persian, he uses his Hebrew, um, and he becomes a part of a cohort of people who are really um, defining what becomes Jewish studies. Re refining medieval manuscripts and, and editing them and publishing them, writing the first histories of the hist of, of the Jews. Nobody had really hit, written a history of the Jews uh, until the 19th century. Um, he does a lot of groundbreaking work in the history of Jewish mysticism in the, in the medieval and uh, medieval Jewish mysticism, especially um, Spanish mysticism, which gives us um, the Zohar, the great uh, the great book of of Kabbalah. Um, and then he's, sure. and then he's um, uh, in eighteen uh, in eighteen forty eight. He's asked to become the the first chief rabbi of the of of the city of Leipzig. Until the eighteen 
um, until the 1820s, Jews actually aren't allowed to even live in the city of Leipzig. They uh, they uh, are not allowed to live in the city itself. They can come in during the day, but then they have to leave. Um, and in the 1840s, Jews start to be allowed to live in the city and they build their first major communal synagogue. Uh, and Leipzig and a series of, of cities in central Germany like it um, uh, build, start to think about a, a future for Judaism where the majority of Jews will live in the city rather than in small towns and commute to the city in order to do uh, in order to do their daily activities. Um, and so between the late 1840s and really the early 1850s and the 1870s, we see this incredible migration because the laws have allowed Jews to move to cities and then because the economics of Europe in the middle of the 20, uh, middle of the 19th century, are pushing urbanization, right, with a, with early factories and trains right. and really yeah. bringing people in a way that like a demographic transition across the continent that's unprecedented in human history. Um, Jews start to move and live in cities uh, in record numbers, right? The, the Vienna, where he's he's offered a job in 1856, he goes and becomes the chief rabbi of Vienna. Um, and uh and Vienna goes from having a, a Jewish community of about 5,000 to in 1900 having a Jewish community of about 250,000. Um, so we're God. talking about in, right, in two, two and a half generations, right? Really, you know, 50 years, just this massive demographic explosion um, in urban centers. And so my book is about, is about this, this man who both like, He's a, he, fought, he he lets me tell a story about the way in which Jewish culture changes in Central Europe uh, at this time, and he also happens to be one of its leaders um, because yes. of his scholarship, his just his insights, and then because he's the first leader of Leipzig, which is not today nobody in America has heard of Leipzig, but at the time was a, actually a major. Uh, a no. major 18th century city in Germany and a Absolutely. major university city in the 19th yeah, century. Yeah, intellectual city. Yeah. An intellectual city, the center of one of the one of the medieval fairs, and then also this university, and then it has one of the earliest um, train terminals um, from Prague uh, to Dresden to Leipzig, and then he moves to Vienna, which is again now we think of it as the the beautiful capital of a, of a rather pathetic tiny little country um but was of course in the 19th century the capital of europe's one of europe's greatest empires right this incredible um diverse brilliant austro-hungarian empire where they speak 11 languages in the parliament right um where it's just this amazing diversity of humanity that all comes to vienna vienna is really in the 19th century the most ethnically diverse city in Europe. Paris is mostly full of Parisians. Berlin is mostly full of North Germans. London is mostly full of Englishmen. You can count the, the Scots and the Irish, I guess, among them, <laughs> right? But mostly full of British <laughs> Islanders. And Vienna is full of of just the, of humanity, of just all yeah, these Vienna, people. Vienna, I've all, if I could go back in time, one of the places definitely would be Vienna in the 19th century yeah, for all the reasons you just must have been amazing, right? Yeah, um, incredible. Yeah. I mean, and, then be, they, yeah. and then they renovate the whole city. They, they tear down the walls. They expand it. They build these huge museums, and, you know. Um, and so he's there as the chief rabbi of this city at this moment when it is really – 
one of the centers. My wife is a is a is a scholar of French art. And so we, our household is divided between, is Paris the capital of the 19th century? Is Vienna the capital of the 19th century? So we have opposing maps in our living room. On one side is Paris and on one side is Vienna. So that, you know. Um, well, you combine two of the two, the two greats. So the two you greats, know, I mean, uh, you've got them there. What about, so I, you know, I love, by the way, first of all, before I get to the title of, of the book, what about, um, what, what, what sources are you using? So does he have papers that he left yeah, behind? So he has, you know, so, so he wrote, uh, you know, he, he just, people in the 19th century published everything that came across their minds. You know, they just, there are just so many newspapers and articles and he has letters and he has, um, and then he gives hundreds and hundreds of sermons. Um, they build a new synagogue, okay. um, just outside of the old city of, of, of Vienna in, in, La, in Leopoldstadt. If someone goes to Vienna today, the, they would probably go across the, uh, the Danube Canal. You would go to Leopoldstadt. Um, it's the historically Jewish neighborhood and, and today remains actually a, a fairly Jewish neighborhood. Um, they build a big new city there. He built all these sermons. He's, uh, he's the chief rabbi of the city. So he's a, he's a public intellectual. He writes for the newspapers. He meets diplomats. Uh, um, he meets par and then parliamentarians. He travels, um, you know, he speaks, you know, he speaks and writes half a dozen languages. So he corresponds, you know, all over Europe. Um, you know, he's, he's just this really extraordinary figure. Um, that are these my, are the are the papers are are there papers in archives or is this yeah, all so, published? So his archive is mostly in none of it's published, nothing about him. Oh, What's really interesting wow. is he's almost entirely forgotten uh, in the twentieth century. Oh, that's um, amazing. Yeah. So uh, his his papers um are in uh actually at the um National Library of Israel um okay. in their archive section. And then there are also scattered letters. I went to archives across Germany and the the Bundesarchiv um across Germany. There are letters here and there. Um the Heidelberg um the Hochschule für Jüdische Studien in Heidelberg has some of his letters to um his then fiance from the eighteen fifties. Um so yeah, so they're kind of it's kind of everywhere and then all the published stuff is um, uh, well. Everything that he wrote, you know, is a lot of it's um, just in libraries. So much of it's available, you know, on like Google Books or Happy yeah. Trust, um, or if oh, you yeah. go to a or if you go to a real a, a real library, you know, Harvard or uh, the Bodleian or, or or Jerusalem, then you know they'll have a lot of the the books that he wrote. Okay. So, yeah. Well, but, you're doing it's history, biography, Jewish studies, I guess, religious. Yeah. So it's yeah and and cultural done. history, you know, it's this cultural this history moment yeah. in time in which like the, you know, so, so much of the reason he goes to the places he goes is because that's, that's the center. That's the, it's, there's an economic reason that city is growing. And then on top of that, it's liberalizing. So he's allowed to live there. Um, which again, I think is, is just really hard for us to, to, to imagine that, and, and especially in the United States, where from the founding of the United States, Jews are allowed pretty much, uh, you know, without question, they're, they're allowed to be citizens and they're allowed to live pretty much wherever they want. Yeah. Of course, neighborhoods have covenants in, in the United States yes, in the 20th century, right. but, but more or less yep. there, there will be a neighborhood for you somewhere. Um, and certainly you'll have citizenship and, and that's just not the case in Germany, in, in Europe in the 19th century, Jews just don't have access to these kinds of, you know, to certainly to citizenship, to, to land rights, to, to, to the rights to own property. 
Um, you know, so all of this stuff is changing in the 19th century. Um, What's the, this kind of leads me to ask about, I love the title city and sanctuary, but what, tell us a little bit what you mean about sanctuary, why that word is uh, in so, the title. Uh, so, um, so what I, what the sort of the two, the two, the, the, the juggle of the book is that both the demographics of Judaism are changing and the ritual and religious life of Judaism is changing. So if you okay. if you grow up in a in a small in, in a relatively small town, certainly not in a city, with a relatively traditional Jewish upbringing that, that looks relatively similar to what it would have looked like a couple of centuries before, um, the urban space just doesn't allow that. Um, the, you have to recreate these institutions. You have to recreate what a synagogue looks like. You have to rethink, you know, and, and I mean, this is, this is as granular as if you're, if you have a, a relatively small number of Jews in a town, let's say, you know, you grew up with a couple of thousand Jews in your town. They live in that town for a few centuries. You all share the same tunes. You all share the same poetry. You all mm -hmm. have the same cemetery. And then you all move to a city and then there's 10,000 Jews and they come from 10 different towns. Whose tunes yeah. are you going to use, right? Which poem, <laughs> which poems are you going to recite on, uh, on you know, on any given on any given hall? There's a standard liturgy, but then people expound on the liturgy. What food? Well, Moravian Jews and Bohemian Jews and Galician Jews all eat slightly different dishes. What are you going to serve as a communal meal, right? So you have to. It actually like there's a there's a granularness to the like what it means when you all start to live together, which is we're all Jews. Of course, we're all Jews. We're all going to pray together. But like, yeah, what's the music going to sound like? This what is, what um, language um, are we going to speak? Are we going to speak Hungarian? Yeah, this is, this is um, um, lived, lived religion lived city. Religion. <laughs> lived religion <laughs> right, city, that granular. Yep. Yeah, that's yep. what it is. That's yep. a great, the great example. Anyway, it's, he's, he's just sounds so interesting and it's cool that no one has really, you know, yeah. done much or anything yeah. with him so congrats on that be exciting <laughs> to see the book out yeah. and uh everyone should read it and then you, you know i know um we're, we're winding down here i know sure. you are interested in philip roth as am i a lot yes. of people yeah. and you were we were talking before um before we started recording that you're part of a special issue is it um is a yeah, philip, philip roth, roth studies, studies journey yeah yeah so a yeah. special issue going. what is it what is it that attracts you aside from judaism right you've got right, that in common but right. what is it that attracts attracts you to roth oh man i've been you know like most american jews i've been reading roth my whole life right you know mm -hmm. and and my life started in the 90s uh and he's been writing you know since the 50s um right and you know i think it was just that roth is and this is one of the cases that we make in our in our introduction to our to the special issue of the journal is that Roth more than any more than many other Jewish American writers has been kind of a part of the the development and evolution and self-reflection of the American Jewish experience in just this incredibly unique way, in a way that like Saul Bellow is a deeply yes. American Jewish writer, a Canadian, I suppose you could say, but like, um, but American Jewish writer, but he, his books don't tell you much about the American Jewish experience. Right. They right. Are I'm not, I'm not a big fan of his. Oh, okay. So I think, that, compared I think to, they're to, brilliant to, and insightful about humans and about Judaism, but not about the American story. You yeah, know, I, that's yeah. right. No, I mean, I you could say the same as, you know, for Cynthia Ozek, right? This incredible, yes. incredible American Jewish writer. But I'm not sure that if you read mm. all of her novels, you would know that much about the American Jewish experience. Um, right. And Roth, 
you know, he's one aspect of the American Jewish experience, but oh my goodness, does he capture his characters all the way along? And what's amazing, and I would, I would make the case, not having read every novel ever, but that what he does with Nathan Zuckerman, his character who's from the Ghostwriter all the way up until Exit Ghost, yeah. you know, in two, that when yeah. that was published in 2004 or six or something, um, that that might be the longest continuous discussion of a character across what I think is a dozen vol- a dozen novels of the American Jewish experience from being in his 20s um, in The Ghostwriter to being in his 70s in Exit Ghost. You know, it's just to take a single character and to have him watch yes. America and to have him watch Judaism and have him continuously, Roth is so funny uh, and annoying because he always says, I'm not <laughs> Jewish. I'm not Jewish. I have nothing to say about Judaism. I have nothing to say about Judaism. And everything you write is about Judaism. Yeah, that's all you write about. <laughs> all exactly. you write about, right? And you're like, no, 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 <laughs> so I'm true. never, I don't want anything to do with yeah. American Judaism. I'm not a Jewish writer. Yeah. I have nothing to say about Judaism. <laughs> you know, and so it's like, but man, you told us a lot about American Judaism. So like he right, just, he did. you know, plus, I mean, you know, I, and of course you can read him from the growth of American male and sexuality and you yes. know, liberation. And you can read him from so many wonderful angles. He's told us, he's told us about anti-Semitism. He's told too. us about anti-Semitism. He's told, yeah. you know, he has this... <laughs> probably mostly thankfully forgotten a very weird book about Richard Nixon, you know, like he has all, he's all <laughs> sorts of crazy stuff. He, he goes to yeah. Prague. He's very, very important for the promotion of East European literature during the cold war. I mean, he's just this incredible figure. Um, um, certainly haunted by his own demons, certainly narcissistic, um, certainly has yeah. very questionable relationships with women. Um, right. You know, but all of that is part of the American story. It's part of the story of the American male. It's part of the story of what it means to what does it mean to live in a world of of, of se- sexual freedom, but also like, wait a minute, there are actually morals inside of that sexual freedom, and yes. like, you know, so he he himself just and he writes about it, and he's so self reflective, right? He's self reflective to a fault. incredibly so. Um, yes, I, I, know, I couldn't. That's exactly right. right to and a fault. he uses self reflection as a as a deflection of self reflection, and then he reflect <laughs> he reflects on the deflection of his self reflection. You know, and I just don't, I just don't think that across <laughs> so many novels, across so many decades, do you find someone who has done at such a high level consistently so many so much uh, thoughtfulness in in all these ways again blatant problems i mean there you would be hard pressed to find an undergraduate who would build a statue of philip roth you know, right. if they re- if they yeah, exactly. knew anything about him that's yeah. just you know that's not yeah. that's not leftist culture today but man like he is an absolute gem in in, in telling us about the human I, experience I, I, um, I I agree. I mean, I've not read all of his work either, but I I, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, and I'm thinking, God forbid, so that we won't be able to read Philip Roth one day. And that reminds me, yeah. by the way, the biography, though. What's his name? Blake Bailey. Yeah, That's Blake Bailey. Steep yep. in controversy yep. too, because of yep. Bailey's own apparent allegations of sexual right. harassment on the right. biographer's part. Somehow fitting, I guess. But do, um, have totally you read that? Fitting. The biography. Yeah, yeah. I've so not the, read, the yeah. biography. You know, I would so. The biography is is an important thing to ex, to exist. It it, it has um, 
it has many insights and it has many flaws. It's not what I would say that anyone who's coming to Philip Roth for the first time, you know, for someone like that, they should read, they should read the ghost writer. They should go to the yeah. early stories. They should read, um, they should read really his American trilogy. I married a communist and, um, yes, that's what um, I've read. Um, Incredible. Right. Um, yeah. They should read some of the the later novels. Every Man is an extraordinary reflection on what it means to die, what it means to die alone. Um, uh, it's just it's just incredible. Nemesis is his certainly his most theological novel. Um, he would he would have denied that um, to his grave. In fact, he did deny it to his grave. But it's a deeply theological novel on the question of, of suffering and pain um, in a world with or without God. Um, you know, so he just, and, and the plot against America, which you referenced a couple of times, oh, right. A real, a, a real, um, a real, at, at a moment, you know, in the early aughts at which, you know, he's, he's written during the Bush administration, which today seems so, such a far away place, um, yes. you know, but on the question of is, is America more like Europe than we think we are? It is, what is the, like, are Jews destined to be able to stay in America for another hundred years? Um, you know, and, and the novel is very equivocal about that. Um, yes, it is. Ultimately, terrible things, the most terrible things don't happen, but there's a fear, an underlying stress um, that you certainly see today in the American Jewish community. Absolutely. Right? I, I think, I mean, the rise of anti-Semitism right, in this country and abroad right. too. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, yeah. so, so this question of like in a hundred years, will my, you know, will my grandchildren, great grandchildren feel safe in America? Um, right. and you know, and he can, to, for, for someone like him to be able to write a novel that asks that question, you know, really, it's really important. Um, yeah, yeah. He's I mean, one of the one of the greats for for sure. Yes, yes. Um, what? So when does the special issue come out of the? Of the uh, it comes out this. Uh, it's this spring, so it should be. Okay. Uh, I think it's in, pre- it's in press. In press as of a couple of days ago, and so right. maybe in a, maybe in a few weeks it'll be up online or sometime in March or April. Yeah. That's um, so what? As we end here, I want to ask you kind of a personal question. What is it like? And what what has it felt like to be? Um, who you are in, in this, <laughs> this Lutheran college. I mean, you said, you know, you wanted to be at a place where, you know, you don't want to be just around people like you. And so yeah, you yeah. kind of answered the question, but I'm just curious what, you know, there aren't that many, never have been that many Jewish uh, sure, faculty. at sure. And I don't know about, about numbers of Jewish students and all the yeah. years I've been at Gustavus, I only I can only recall one overtly um, anti-Semitic comment made yeah, in I, passing. I've certainly not experienced no. anything like that. You know, I um, on on the question, and I know many people who write op-eds would disagree with me on this, but I actually I, I don't. Cert- and having spent time in Europe, the kind of thing we think of anti-Semitism in Europe as being is is just a, it just doesn't exist here. Um, I actually mm-hmm. find. Discussing, especially when I teach Holocaust or, or teach, you know, anti-Semitism in my introduction in Judaism class, I actually find the students more perplexed by it than like understanding of it. They're like, why? Why would anyone spend so much of their energy? Right? They're like, they're just too distracted by other things. Um, you know, so I, I don't, I certainly don't feel like I meet, I meet that here. There is a, um, there's a certain, I think there's a certain way in which, um, like, it's, it's. I mean, any liberal arts college is really quite delightful to be a little different. You're given actually a little bit more space. Um, That's true. So yeah. it's sort of like, yeah, I don't really understand you or what you do or what you think, but like, 
okay, that's fine, right? Um, <laughs> so there's so in that way, I actually feel like it's a little bit more. Um, it's a little bit more. You know, and again, I like, I love, I love my colleagues on the East Coast and I love being on the East Coast and, you know, my wife's from the East Coast and I live in the East Coast, you know, but if you're, if you're around a lot of other people who are like you, you then, people then slot you into a group that are, this is, this is, this is, this is the part of us that you are. Um, And it can be harder to be different than that. Um, And here it's like, you know, uh, nobody, nobody knows what part of the group I am. Like I wear... I wear a kippa, a black, uh, you know, a black knitted kippa, and in Brooklyn that means something very clear, and in Israel that really means something. And it, it, just, it doesn't mean anything at all, right? It's just like a guy who like wears a thing on his head, and that doesn't, you know, it's like oh, I don't know what that is. Um, you have some of the, you have some of the freedom in a way that yeah. um, you were talking about with respect to the students in Europe. You yeah, know, in a way, yeah, right. So given given where you are, right? You know, so yeah, that's interesting. That's, that's what I. That's that's actually my. That's my biggest. Um, the, my biggest takeaway is actually just sort of the level of, um, uh, you know, and, and again, I, I'm, I'm old enough not to be, not to be a student who feels, you know, I don't have any of the, I'm not worried. Like I'm not constantly nervous, right. As a, as a 20 year old right. is about how they're right. presenting. I, you know, sure. I, I like, I come from a place, I know who we are, we have a family, yeah. you know, so there's a, there's a certain, um, you know, and, and the, and the yeah. school just, I think, you know, as liberal arts colleges do and as, as America is trying more and more to, to make space for saying, yeah, your life's going to look different than mine. And right. I actually like even if I don't know what that is, it's like, oh, that's it's just there. And, and that's and that's OK. Um, yeah. yeah. And you you and Mary and Broida, um, also in religion, you you both and others. I mean, you you have these um, seders. I mean, these pretty big events. On yeah. Campus, yeah. Which are well, well you know, and I felt very, very supported in all of that, which is really quite fun. Yeah. So, yeah, it's um, great. Yeah, no, the college certainly supports trying and, and the students are interested um, they don't always know what to do with that interest, but they're, but they're certainly interested. Right. Um, well, you, you are very interesting. This has been a wonderful conversation. <laughs> Thank it's been you. so interesting to me. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, especially, uh, prospective students who might be listening, come to Gustavus come, to absolutely. take courses from Professor Kessler and his colleagues in the wonderful religion department, awesome department. And, uh, Sam, good luck this semester. I'm on leave, so I feel a little guilty here, but um, <laughs> it's okay. good, it's okay. good, good, good luck with all the good luck with the book coming out, both books Thank you. Thank and you. with the rest of the semester. And this has been a real pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time. So thanks so much. Thank you so much. Take good care. See you. You too. Thanks. Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Gustavus graduate Will Clark, class of 20, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College.